Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Two greetings from sunny Virginia, sunny but cold Virginia. I am right on the heels of our Oklahoma City conference, which was uh, fantastic, really fantastic. I think the files should be up by the time people listen to this. Um, and uh, man, just an incredible time. If people, I, Stephen Paulson, who was there, the theologian, was the best I've ever heard him. And Carrie Willard just gave uh, a sort of a traffic stopping talk in which she sang. RJ, she reminded me of you. She sang a cappella at the end and then everyone joined it. Unlike you, everyone joined oh, in. Wow. That's, so that's nice. awesome. It was Very super Barack Obama of her. It was super powerful and that like it started out with almost 25 minutes of pure stand-up comedy and yeah. then segued into like the heaviest and most powerful uh testimony uh testimony, testament to grace that uh, I've heard in a while. And what did she sing? She sang um I think how firm a foundation. Cool. Oh my gosh, that's going to make me cry just thinking about it. I thought that was amazing. Oh, you guys, I mm. it was really special. So it, thank you to everyone who helped make that possible, especially Carol and Scott Johnson and everyone at All Souls Episcopal Church there in Oklahoma City. But um, that was then and this is now. And uh, I want to hear how you guys are doing. Good. I just was home in Mississippi for the weekend. So... You know, we went to a petting zoo. My mom and I saw some political signs that had the Confederate flag on them in our neighborhood, and we pulled them out of people's yards, which I later learned was a misdemeanor. So it was a big time. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're wondering where your missing signs are. Yeah, um, there's, yeah, it actually showed up in her. She's a neighborhood like group page, and this one was like, whoever took my signs, you know, and so I'm thinking about just getting big heart stickers just to cover up the Confederate flag part and then putting them back in people's yards. You know what I mean? Mm. So That's been happening in Houston. There have been these viral videos where people get caught on, you know, people's security cams in the front yard, yeah. like taking their Beto O'Rourke signs out of the front <laughs> yard, you know, and then it goes in the nightly news and that person gets right. totally shamed. And then the, the yeah. person puts a hundred Beto signs. I mean, there's corners which literally are plastered. So it's That's getting hilarious. intense, man. It is. Yeah, Beto Cruz, Beto Cruz. 2018. You know, people can, it doesn't, like, people should put up whatever signs they want. I just, you know, my parents have all these, like, sweet black folks that live in their neighborhood, and I'm like, I don't want them driving in their neighborhood having to see this, so we just pulled them up. But I did Google it. It is a crime. You should not do it. So. <laughs> well, RJ, anything happening? Any uh, non-misdemeanors that to report? <laughs> no, we're doing good. I'm a little bummed the Astros are down 2-1 to the Red Sox, which I know has really been on your mind, Sarah, too. And you, Dave, do you know what sport we're talking about? Even which sport it's, I'm talking uh, about? Hockey, you say? You're, yeah, hockey. Hockey. <laughs> yes, no, hockey. trust me, I'd be I'd be crucified here. I know too many Houstonites who are just uh, live and breathe Astros. I know they were doing so well and then gave up a grand slam in the top of the eighth yesterday. So game four is tonight. I'm hoping they can 
even it up two games apiece because, man, last year, the, the Astros World Series run last year on the heels of Hurricane Harvey was such a, it was a blessing. It really it was, was amazing. for our city. Yeah. And I took the boys downtown for the victory parade and it was just uh, something our city actually really uh, needed after that tragedy. So that's the that's the most exciting thing happening in my life right now. And I, we, we were coming home from dinner last night and and uh, I was telling my wife about it. She's like, RJ, I don't care as long as you don't get too angry about it. And <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that was a very even-handed and fair comment. Jamie so, Heyman, uh, this, the secret star of this, <laughs> of this podcast. That's right. Um, well, guys, we're going to start off by talking about the employer surveillance state. It would seem that the uh, elf on the shelf has become the sort of big brother in the um, in your email box. Uh, according to the Atlantic, Ellen uh, Ruppel Shell wrote this, but it's right on the heels of. A bunch of articles like this about the, the the never-ending performance reviews. That performance reviews are now four times a year, but they're shorter, and uh, and rather than just one time a year, or sometimes they're ongoing. But it was it's interesting. I think uh, we're discussing the First Corinthians passages about the foolishness versus the wisdom of the world versus the foolishness of the gospel. And I can't think of a greater example for about the wisdom of the world than what Ellen Shell reports on here. And here we go. Michael Antby, a Boston University sociologist and business scholar, has watched how monitoring affects employees at TSA and other workplaces. He's also noticed that the more employees are watched, the harder they try to avoid being watched and the harder management tries to watch them. Most TSA workers, this we're talking about the... Um, Transportation Security uh, Administration, we observe, do everything possible to stay under the radar to essentially disappear. They try to never speak up, never stick out, do nothing that might get noticed by management. This leads to a vicious cycle whereby management grows more suspicious and feels justified in ratcheting up the surveillance. But it's not just TSA. Uh, perhaps the most common argument for surveillance, one that's often deployed by firms that make employee monitoring products, is that it can make workers more productive. Purveyors of monitoring software claim they can help managers reduce the number of wasted hours and ensure that employees make better use of their time. In general, though, studies of surveillance suggest that it can increase workplace stress, promote worker alienation, lower job satisfaction, and convey the perception that the quantity of work one generates is more important than its quality. In an analysis aptly titled Watching Me, Watching You, the British anthropologists Michael Fisher and Sally Applin conclude that workplace surveillance creates a, quote, culture where people more often alter their behavior to suit machines and work with them rather than the other way around. Worse yet, some studies suggest that workers who sense they are monitored have lower self-esteem and are generally less productive. In fact, Antby told me, those of us who do cheat on the job often do so in retaliation for the very lack of trust surveillance implies. Well, I mean, well, well. The law increases the trespass. Someone like, once wrote. A lob over the plate. Have we learned nothing from like accountability in Christian small groups? I just... Well, for all two of us that were in one... <laughs> <laughs> Listen to this podcast, actually. It's like everyone, but yes, we should have learned something from our college fellowship groups. Oh my gosh. This isn't, it's, it's intense, the idea that people would live and work uh, in this way. And I mean, it's obvious that it would have a really negative impact, but the, the fact that like people then try to hide more and their self-esteem goes down and I mean... And TSA is such a miserable job anyway. It's just, it's overwhelming. Mm. 
Yeah, I think they interview like the one guy who really loves working for TSA because he gets to meet all sorts of travelers from around the world. And I'm thinking like, I was just traveling last week. Uh, it's not a pleasant experience right. being a TSA agent. And the, the, what, the, the monologue, the dialogue going on in my head as I got, uh, you know, ushered through that cancer machine for the fifth time. I mean, you just want to say, what is what is happening? And, and you can only imagine when you catch people on a bad day, the sort of stuff looks, they say. Yeah, the oh, stuff yeah. they say. But a culture where people more often alter their behavior to suit machines and work with them rather than the other way around. Doesn't that seem like uh, everything we talk about when it comes to, yeah, small groups, sanctification, church surveillance, uh, just in general, people who feel scrutinized tend to either uh, contort themselves into this false idea of the person they think you want them to be, or they just flee and rebel and run the other way. And I mean, you don't even have to get theological about it. You can just say, look at this. It, it just doesn't work. It may produce a few extra hours in the meantime, but ultimately what you have is a big steaming pool of resentment. Right. Yeah. It's And to put on my tinfoil hat for a moment, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it is like really creepy to think about like where this is headed. Like we were, we were watching where we've, we just started to watch um, way beyond when anyone else watched it. The, is it electric dreams? It's on Amazon. It's um, a yeah, sci-fi. Yeah. So it's a little bit like black mirror, but it's more sci-fi. And so I was sitting there with Josh last night and I was like, gosh, it's like every episode is about how humanity has sort of lost itself. Either like they're going extinct or they're so whatever. It's like that, you know, all our worst case scenarios for humanity. And yet technology is, advanced incredibly mm. and um of course josh was like that's all science fiction which is mostly true but it is this like turning to um turning to something else to save us right turning to turning to technology to fix it and i mean i think about the first job i had i worked next to hr like they were right behind me i worked at a workers comp insurance company which is like hell because they were basically just trying to get out of ever having to pay workers comp but the HR lady was behind me and it was just such a weird dynamic of like them being friendly and also observing everyone all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's creepy. You don't tell your secrets to that person. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I kind of uh, mixed emotions about this. I mean, I, I by nature, I kind of like transparency. You know, mm -hmm. honestly, I, I like living in the light. I like being, I mean, I'm probably an oversharer, to be totally honest with you. Oh, no, you're definitely an oversharer. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, so. No, yeah, no yeah, question yeah. about yeah. it. Guys, that's, um, that's, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, but it's true. I'm an oversharer, and I like transparency. I like people to know where I stand. I like to know where they stand. And there was something slightly encouraging in this article. You know, that one um, was a Boston-based company called Humanize. Uh, used statistics to... They found patterns of employee behavior that found that frequent, uh, more frequent employee interactions improved productivity, so the employer installed larger, more central coffee stations to encourage those interactions. And to me, that's the kind of data gathering that could actually be helpful. And it comes to this question of are we using this to help or to harm 
And then also, you know, especially in these power dynamics in offices, is there the same level of transparency with the management as there is with the managed? Uh, One of my friends gave me this great book called Radical Candor, which is about a particular management style that's been popular, I guess, in Silicon Valley for better or for worse. But a big part of it is just kind of telling the truth. You know, like employees telling the truth to bosses and bosses telling the truth to employees and and kind of letting the best idea win to some degree, which seems very idealistic. Um, but that would be my hope. And, and maybe we'll actually make it there someday because the more and more information we have and the more transparency there is, whether we want it or not, it will become apparent that mercy will be necessary. You know, like you can't, we will not be able to interact with one another unless there can be a little bit of mercy. We kind of talked about that in our last episode where pretty soon every interaction you've ever had in your entire life will be archived for all time. Mm -hmm. And people will have to hopefully exercise a little bit more humility. um, And the people, those who have power, quote unquote, in whatever context they have it, uh, hopefully that transparency won't just be a, a, a blunt force object that they use against those that are under their um, authority, but rather might become a way for them to better care for people under their authority. That's mm. a very idealistic vision. But again, I like transparency. I do. Um, and my hope is that, I don't know, it leads to intimacy and not uh, oppression, well, I, I was I, I was thinking of this more in terms of you know um, I, I watch businesses, but I also watch churches and all sorts of collectives, groups of people, and uh, I was you know people around us are always talking about how do you grow organizations, how do you grow nonprofits, how do you grow uh, churches, and there's sort of the default is always well you keep track of people. You make sure you know when they're coming, how they're coming, and you know what carrots you can dangle and what threats you can use. And there's no question is that that, that there's no sort of deeper magic to life than uh, simply a, a reward and punishment scenario. And that's kind of what they're talking about here. It's not exclusively, because I also remember, you know, um, being a part of a, you know, in a former life, being a part of an organization where we really tried to just give each other really long leashes, uh, you know, thinking like, you know, any kind of expectation or any kind of check-in surveillance would sort of be the law and uh, that that would, um, you know, decrease people's ability to want to work and everything like that. And in some cases that was true. In other cases, it was just people just didn't do anything. <laughs> and it was, and all of a sudden you find yourself reverting to the law. And of course, there's always deeper issues at work. I don't want to horizontalize this probably a little too quickly, but I know that there's both sides here where you want to shout at the business world, you know, and especially when people try to import business techniques into the sort of church world, mm-hmm. you see like, this is not the only way to motivate people actually. And, and in fact, mm-hmm. it's not the best way. However, grace is not a means to an end and it doesn't have to produce any kind of outcome. And in order to run a business, certain things need to, you know, boxes need to be checked. So it's a murky area, but it is certainly the wisdom of the world is always to crack the whip, I think. The healthiest example of helpful transparency I've ever heard about, and I haven't experienced it, I experienced it a little bit firsthand, 
was Alex Large, one of our coworkers, talking about the venerable and blessed uh, Bishop Ed Salmon, now deceased of the Diocese of South Carolina. And Alex worked with Bishop Salmon in D.C., and he said staff meetings were incredible because if you got a bunch of people around a table at a staff meeting and it became clear that there was like sort of an unspoken conflict between two Mm -hmm. people, he would point at them and be like, okay, you guys, you need to work this out right now. Go. We're not leaving until you work this out. Mm -hmm. And he would make them work it out in front of everybody. And if Mm -hmm. someone came to him and complained about someone else, he would go to the person that was complained about and be like, oh, so-and-so is complaining about you. You should go work that out. And then apparently when he was the interim dean of Neshota House Seminary in, in, was it Wisconsin? Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, First time someone came up to him and and sort of, uh, you know, complained about someone else, he went to the cafeteria and wrote on the board, so-and-so said such-and-such about so-and-so on the board in front of everybody else, as if to say, I will not be triangulated. This will be dealt with. Um, and it was, he was a wonderful, gracious, lovely he, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This makes him sound really hard-edged. He's not. No, he wasn't he's at not. All. Yeah, he's yeah. not. And, and the closest yeah. I think I, thing I had was- um, His demeanor spent, communicated gosh. that people were loved in a deep yes. way. Yes, I mean, and yes. he was yes. so lovely and wonderful and would do anything for you and would give you the shirt off his back. My goodness. Mm-hmm. But I remember him sitting in my office. We spent like an hour together and I told him I was in charge of stewardship. He's like, he's like, so tell me about that. How many, um, how many pledging families do you have? How much do they give? How old are they? What are their demographics? Where are they headed? And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know. He's like, it, it occurs to me that someone in your positions have answers to these types of questions, <laughs> you know? And it wasn't, and it wasn't mean. He was just right. You know, Mm -hmm. and it was incredibly gracious and helpful transparency, you know, and, and, and it it wasn't oppressive. It was good. Mm. And Alex had many, many interactions. We've actually done an entire podcast where Alex just dispenses to the Mockingbird world all the wisdom that he uh, received from Bishop Ed Salmon, because it's incredible. I have a whole document on my desktop of like Ed Salmon quotes. He's like a Mr. Um, Rogers. I have a a post-it note on my desktop of an Ed Salmon quote. That's funny. Mine is, Jesus is Lord, and that is not up for discussion. (laughs) (laughs) WW Ed Salmon D. Right. You know? <laughs> well, it, it's it, it's kind of, um, it leads into this next piece that Sarah, you sent us, which is really mm. uh, unbelievably powerful. But, you know, when you are under constant surveillance, especially if there's a real threat behind it, I don't think Ed Salmon had that, you know, he, he was so loving that, you know, if you're going to lose your job, if you tell the truth about how you're actually doing or mm-hmm. what's really going on, it just creates an atmosphere of falsehood and... Um, mm-hmm people hiding and lying. And here you have a family breaking that taboo in such a bold and touching way, writing an obituary for their daughter who died very recently. She was 30 years old. This is how it reads. Our beloved Madeline Ellen Linsenmeyer died Sunday, October 7th. While her death was unexpected, Madeline suffered from drug addiction, and for years we feared her addiction would claim her life. We are grateful that when she died, she was safe and with her family. Madeline, I'm just going to skip through a little bit. Madeline loved to ski and snowboard, and she swam on the YMCA swim team, winning medals at the New England Regionals. When she was 16, she moved with her parents from Vermont to Florida to attend a performing arts high school. Soon after, she tried Oxycontin uh, for the first time at a high school party, and so began a relationship with opiates that would dominate the rest of her life. It is impossible to capture a person in an obituary, and especially someone whose adult life was largely defined by drug addiction. To some, Maddie was just a junkie. When they saw her addiction, they stopped seeing her. And what a loss for them, because Maddie was hilarious, warm, fearless, and resilient. She could and would talk to anyone, and when you were in her company, you wanted to stay. 
In a system that seems to have hardened itself against addicts and is failing them every day, she befriended and delighted cops, social workers, public defenders, and doctors who advocated for and believed in her till the end. She was adored as a daughter, niece, a sister, cousin, friend, and mother. Being loved by Madeline was a constantly astonishing gift. Maddie loved her family and the world, but more than anyone else, she loved her son, Aiden, who was born in 2014. During the past two years especially, her disease brought her to places of incredible darkness, and this darkness compounded on itself as each unspeakable thing that happened to her and each horrible thing she did in the name of her disease exponentially increased her pain and shame. For 12 days this summer, she was home, and for most of that time, she was sober. For those 12 wonderful days full of swimming and Disney movies and family dinners, we believed, as we always did, that she would overcome her disease and make the life for herself we knew she deserved. We believed this until the moment she took her last breath. But her addiction stalked her and stole her once again. Though we would have paid any ransom to have her back any price in the world, this disease would not let her go until she was gone. And then they sort of talk about what, what, where you can donate, but then they, they close with this little sermonette. Mm. Um, if you yourself are struggling from addiction, know that every breath is a fresh start. Know that hundreds of thousands of families who have lost someone to this, to this disease are praying and rooting for you. Know that we believe with all our hearts that you can and will make it. It is never too late. If you're reading this with judgment, educate yourself about this disease because that is what it is. It is not a choice or a weakness. And chances are very good that someone you know is struggling with it. And that person needs and deserves your empathy and support. If you work in one of the many institutions through which addicts often pass, rehabs, hospitals, jails, courts, and treat them with the compassion uh, and respect they deserve, thank you. If you instead see a junkie or a thief or a liar in front of you rather than a human being in need of help, consider a new profession. We take comfort in knowing that Maddie is surrounded by light, free from the struggle that haunted her. We would have given anything for her to experience that freedom in this lifetime. Our grief over losing her is infinite, and now so is she. Ooh. Oh my gosh. It's so like hearing you read, I sent it to you, but hearing you read it is so heavy. It's a strange thing because I've never seen an obituary for a person that is not famous circulate on the internet, mm. really. Unless it's mean. <laughs> Unless it's mean, We've right? talked about those. Well, yeah, we've talked about it on here, but but um, this one was so, um, well, so powerful for a lot of reasons. I, I think I was particularly moved because, you know, opioid addiction is a, a major issue in our country right now. You know, I have a friend who's a priest. Um, he's been a rector of a church for two years. He's done five funerals already for um people who were addicted to opioids. And I think that we um, often hide this stuff in our families. When we have, when we lose people this way, um, we take on a certain level of shame and we are in so many ways unwilling to admit that they were suffering immensely, that they weren't selfish, that they were suffering. And for her family to just crack this open right after it's happened and to say, this is who our daughter was, this is what we've lost, it's just incredibly powerful to me. I mean, this feels, you know, I, I wish we saw more obituaries like this for suicide. I mean, that was all I could think of. So often when someone kills himself, it's a very like, we're going to hide everything. And this, this feels similar in some ways, right? That it was this thing that she just couldn't out run when we had our miscarriage um what now 
five years ago, which doesn't really compare, right? Because we never met our daughter and we look forward to meeting her in heaven. One of my sons said that. He said when he, he was like six, he's like, well, now part of our family is in heaven. I was like, oh my gosh, that's insane. But yeah, I, I think I have a daughter in heaven and look forward to meeting her. But I remember when we were um, struggling through that, I did have the thought popped in my mind, which I kind of hated, but I think is true and hopeful, is that suffering is one of the tools God uses to make us more like Jesus. And um, even as I say that, I hate it because it sounds like every cloud is a silver lining or God works all things together for the, you know, for the good of those who love him. Which is, which is in the Bible. That is in the Bible. <laughs> but, um, but you see that in this obituary. Mm-hmm. You see uh, a mom or a dad or whoever wrote this, a family in their suffering, in their grief, having sort of a tender heartedness and a big heartedness and a softness. You know, what's the promise? I will take your hearts of stone and give you hearts of flesh. Hearts of flesh are able to offer compassion and healing and love to people who need it. And so uh, it reminded me of this week's This American Life, which is called Before the Next One, which is about school shootings and what some schools are doing to try to prepare. And they talk to a bunch of teachers and whatever. But one of the acts was just a couple, mom and a dad, Texan, who lost their daughter in the Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooting. And after that happened, they sold all they own and they bought a trailer. And now they just travel around the world going to sites where mass shooting events have occurred and just listening and loving and serving and being available. And they were saying how all of their friends and family that they knew before the shooting are like, what are you doing? Like you have, you're obsessed, you know, you, you're changed. And they're like, yes, we are changed Mm -hmm. and we are obsessed, but this is our life now. And the healing that they have been able to offer, even as they have not been able to overcome their own grief, in the midst of their grief, in the midst of their pain and their suffering, I think, again, is just a testimony to this awful and hopeful truth that suffering is a tool that God uses to make us more like Jesus. And I hate that, and I wish it weren't true, but I think it is. Mm. I mean, I'm sort of reminded as as you speak, RJ, about um, my father sent me this wonderful quote from Heinrich Heine, the great German writer who's writing about the difference between Jesus and the sort of the the holiday gods of old. That he he how he this is how he says this is from his prose work, The Town of Luca. So all day long until the sun went down, they spent in feasting, and the measured feast matched well their heart's desire. So did the flawless harp held by Apollo and the heavenly songs and choiring antiphon that all the muses sang. Then suddenly a pale, blood-stained Jew came panting in with a crown of thorns on his head and a great wooden cross over his shoulder. And he threw the cross on the god's high table so that the golden goblets trembled and the gods fell silent and turned pale and became paler and paler till at last they had entirely dissolved into mist. Anyone who sees his gods suffer finds it easier to endure his own pain. The merry gods of the past, who felt no pain, did not know either how poor, tortured human beings feel, and a poor person in desperation could have no real confidence in them. 
They were holiday gods. People danced around them merrily and could only thank them. For this reason, they never received wholehearted love. To receive wholehearted love, one must suffer. Compassion is the last sacrament of love. It may be love itself. Therefore, of all the gods who ever lived, Christ is the God who has been loved the most. Sarah, what do you think? I, yeah, I mean, I, it's funny that I'm the one that sent this in and I'm like, I, you, I mean, everything you guys are saying is just resonating. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I think, I think I read this from a more practical standpoint just because I, you know, I know so intimately how this addiction works in people's lives and how powerless families are. And so for me, it was like a practical thing almost as a pastor to read and then to have RJ remind me about where our suffering lies and how it really ultimately finds its way to the foot of the cross is good. <laughs> so I'm grateful for that. It's It struck me as a deeply true obituary. And again, uh, we we all go through these times of death and mourning and grief. And, you know, you want to honor the person's life and you really want to cast them in a good light that is respectful while also conveying something admirable about the person. So I understand why people would not write obituaries this way. Mm -hmm. But I also know that I've read a gazillion obituaries that tell you the achievements and the Phi Beta Kappa and the, you know, um, where they got married and all that stuff. And that's all beautiful. No one would, I don't take issue with that, but I know that I don't remember them like I remember this one. And I don't feel it's people using their daughter's death to score points. I feel like it's right. it's very much from the heart. And that's why it's it issues from pain and love. And that's why it speaks with such a pure voice, almost sort of God's voice. When, when, when you read the, those invitations at the end, um, I'm, I almost feel like I'm hearing God addressing uh, me. And then when you hear, though we would have paid any ransom to have her back, any price mm. in the world, this disease would not let her go until she was gone. And then the second you use the word ransom, of course I'm thinking of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And of course I'm thinking of the, the father's pain. And I'm, and I'm thinking yeah. of the, uh, and t- t- taking on the burdens of the world. And, and there, you know, th- that we point to something that doesn't, put a bandaid on the depth of the hurt and sadness here, but allows us to feel it, I think, more deeply and not run frightened from it. Like the, like the surveillance state is watching us and that we better get our response right. right, You know, that, uh, you know, that we have the the Ed Salmon of the world's watching over us as we um, negotiate this terribly sticky and awful way of, uh, of, of losing people we love who are, who are never just one thing and not another, you know? Right. And I think that maybe that's what I, I, I've been thinking of this for a couple of weeks now. Um, we took, this is going to sound like the weirdest segue, but we have been a little bit better about taking vacations, even if it's just getting away for a little while. And it sort of made me realize um, how stupid it is to buy the amount of pillows, decorative pillows for our couches that I purchase right now, <laughs> which... I have like a whole closet that's my decor closet. And I mean, I don't know why. And, you know, but I waste money on these things. Right. And then it just and, and, you know, we're all sort of at this we're at this age now. Right. It's not 100 years ago. You're not like depending on your mother's furniture, your grand. We all have houses full of furniture, houses full of things. You know, my parents are going to downsize there. You know, it's like there's so much stuff and and it keeps like roaring in my head like 
But relationships, I mean, that's why this is so honest and powerful and painful. I mean, it's painful because the relationships um, were painful, but also it's so beautiful and so true to, to who who we all are and what our obituary should be. Because sure, I mean, there is all there are all these accomplishments, but ultimately the relationships that we have, that's the only, that's really the only thing that matters. I mean, I know that's like a thing we hear all the time and I don't know why God keeps putting that on my heart, but it's like literally like the way that I'm mother today is the most important thing that happened. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just like the way that I interact with people. And I think it's, this This was so moving because it was so much about how she interacted with people, right? For good and for bad. Because, I don't know. Arch. It reminds me of Salmonism that I Alex uh, shared with me, which was, uh, Alex, uh, love and relationships are by definition stressful. You don't get stressed out by your relationship with the girl who bags your groceries. <laughs> <laughs> oh man well this is from, so great i love it so from one hero to the next this past week we posted dr dorothy martin her talk from i think the second or possibly third mockingbird conference i always forget uh in which she came and spoke to us about the new recipe grace and family life and this went on the website and those who haven't gotten a chance to read it really run and don't walk uh dr martin just by way of introduction she was my own personal therapist for many years and we got to do kate and i got to do premarital counseling with her but uh a true beacon of grace for me and i'd say you know because one's parents can't really serve that role in a in as 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 uh, Stephen Paulson and, and then Carrie Willard says, mom and dad kind of have to be Moses to their kids a lot. Uh, <laughs> you need the the grace figures. He he said mm-hmm. that the the gospels passed down in families uh, through grandmothers because grandmothers can say yes and grandfathers too, but they tend to be dead <laughs> basically. But um, he said, given that I barely knew my grandparents, it's very telling. Well, anyway, Dorothy was that for me and uh, a listening ear like no other, but she tells a story here. Uh, I'm just going to read you her words because uh, she's talking about this relational um, secret or not even a secret, this relational grace of which we refer to. It says, the nature of nurturing love is to me authentic and effectual to the degree to which it transcends the commonly assumed principle of this for that or circular exchange. She goes on to describe three different um, ways in which love, uh, the, three different aspects of that love. The second which is mercy. Mercy means entering into another person's need or suffering. It stands with that person and not over against them. Mercy has to do with the presence within a person's situation and suffering. There's a story I have to tell about this. Susie was a well-brought-up child of professional parents, and she had a terrible sleep problem. She was maybe five or six. She didn't want to stay in her own bed at night, and she would get up at all hours of the night and come to get in bed with her parents. The parents, who were knowledgeable and who read all the books about child-rearing, tried all of those things that professionals suggested about how to get children to sleep in their own beds and to stop pestering you in the middle of the night. But none of these gimmicks worked with her. Susie had other symptoms too. She called her mother terrible names, like you worm. It would be easy to assume her behavior perhaps reflected how she was being treated at home, but that wasn't the case. This language came from somewhere deep inside the little girl and would take us some time to understand. As the story unfolded, we had decided that the mother, the little girl, and I would spend some time in the playroom together. This was not to say that it was the mother's fault. Usually when a child has a problem involving a parent, it's often more direct with the parent of the same sex. 
So the mother and I watched the little girl play, which took on some most interesting forms. We had the Barbie dolls there, and the Barbie dolls had a party, and we each had a Barbie doll, and one belonged to the mother, one belonged to me, and one belonged to her. The little girl said to one of the dolls, you can't come to this party. It was her mother's doll. You're sick, and you have to stay in bed, and I hope you don't get any better. From there, it became much more violent. These dolls were in for a rough ride. It came to pass, so to speak, that the mother was told her doll had to be attacked with harpoons and spears, and the other dolls had to do it. Indeed, unto death, and not just unto death, but as a final kind of insult, bugs were put all over the body of this dead Barbie doll. An ordinary person looking at this would think, what on earth is the matter with this child? Does she have some terrible disease? Well, I want you to know I've spent 30 years doing play therapy, and I've seen cannibalism and dismemberment regularly come out of the play of the most, quote, normal little children. It seems to be a part of the human condition, something in us all. It became very clear that the daughter had a rage at the mother for possessing something that she herself wanted, namely the father. This may sound Freudian and very outmoded, but this was the way children played this out. When there was this kind of crime leveled against a parent, the criminal had to go through terrible, terrible punishments. And this little girl was extremely confident in constellating the punishment scene where her mother was forced to die in an electric chair. I had clued the mother in that these were not horrible things, that we were just trying to find out what was under the underneath stuff was, which is why I consider this an accurate portrayal of mercy. The mother had mercy for her child. The playroom was an old-fashioned apartment where there were still servant bells, so she found that she could push the servant's electric bell, and that would be the discharge of electricity, at which point her mother's doll was supposed to fall dead. Her mother entered into this play, always being the bad guy and getting electrocuted. The girl devised this scene and played it over and over. I tell this story mainly because of the power of mercy at work. It was astounding to both parents that with this kind of allowance to play and to just have it watched and understood and reflected, this little girl started to sleep better. She just had to get it all out. It had to be externalized. The mother and the father entered in without manipulating the behavior in any way, and the symptoms got better. I don't mean that this little girl was forever saved according to the world's standard, but that problem did go away. Now, this is what I mean by the power of this kind of love that does not base itself on what you deserve. I am reminded of the miracle of it all and something I recently read about a book of prayer I love. It speaks of the miracles of eternity that are made in the course of simple circumstances of everyday life. One of the prayers was, we live in a world enfolded by time, and now and then the splendor of eternity simply breaks in. Now these simple victories of power of love are not so simple after all. They're really miracles of eternity. That's what I, we mean, I think, when we pray Sunday after Sunday, thy kingdom come. Hmm. What do you think, guys? Well, I mean, when I read the piece in preparation, I mean, it's just so, it is so Christ-like, right, that her mother is the doll that gets electrocuted. Her mother is the doll that, you know, is dismembered and covered in bugs as a way for the little girl to process whatever she's going through. Um, so it did make me think of those moments in parenting and specifically for me in motherhood when you can't have a this, this for that relationship with children. You just can't. I mean, you can, but it like, it won't work and you won't feel connected to them and they won't feel connected to you. And you really, I mean, parenting is so much about uh, being 
let letting them letting them live this out, right? Like letting them live out anger with you, sometimes letting them live out frustration with you. And I was thinking of this conversation I had with our son a few weeks ago because you know, he's a brilliant little boy and he's he's just remarkable. But three and four-year-old Neil were he was challenging for us. I mean, he's a first child and smarter than both of us. And he, you know, just was what it was. But I raised my voice a lot. I wasn't as good a mother as I wish I could have been. And I said to him, you know, I I feel like I yelled at you a lot and I'm sorry about that. And he said, it's okay, mama. You did the best you could. I was your first baby. And I said, that's so nice of you to say. I said, I'm just working on trying to be a gentler mama. And he goes, you've already accomplished that, which is not true. <laughs> but but it made me feel like he's had enough space, right, to, to, um, to just be in whatever he's in. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's just what she pinpoints about this for that not being true relationship is true in our relationships with our children. It's so true in marriage, which is such a this for that dynamic, right? I could only think about that piece a couple of weeks ago we read with a guy who like announced every time he unloaded the dishwasher or whatever, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's to, to the detriment of his marriage. And it's funny, RJ and I were talking about this. Sometimes I put up some heated things on social media. You put up something on social media, Sarah? I know. And wow. I didn't I didn't realize Taking how much... Taking a break from your fast. Yes. I didn't realize uh, yeah, exactly how much heat it was going to cause me. But I had the thought this morning. I preached this morning and this sweet older gentleman at our church said, you know, how grateful he was for the message of grace and how different it was for him. And um, so I just, I had this crazy thought, like, what if we just preach grace? Like, you know what I mean? Like, what if, so what if we never preach this for that? Like, what would happen? And I put that up and it was amazing how angry it made people. So it, what she's saying may feel very simplistic and towards children, but it's incredibly radical, actually, that we would not look at life that way. It made me think of that incredible episode of Invisibilia from a few years ago, the the problem with the solution about that town in Belgium, uh, Hale, you know, where because of this supposed beheading or something of a particular saint, um, people in this town have been taking mentally ill people into their homes for centuries. And, and mentally ill people have been living in their homes for decades, um, sort of cost-free. And about how it's 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 the most effective treatment method that's like ever been uh, discovered. And this is real. Have you heard this episode? Sarah? I, I've you know heard of this. Yeah, it's incredible. It's unbe- it is unbelievable. It's like um, Lars and the Real Girl in real life. If you've really? seen the Ryan Gosling, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the thing that never works is that family members can never do this for their children, or their spouses, or their parents, or their siblings because lodged in the back of your mind is always the hopes and dreams that you had for who that person would be than who they actually are. Um, And the reason it made me think about that was because um, I so badly want to be Dorothy Martin. And I think I'm okay at it in some situations. But what I find to be true is that the closer a person is to me, the harder it is to be gracious towards them. Right, so it's very easy for me to show grace to a parishioner, for example, for the most part. Um, it's easy to show it to a friend, a little bit less easy. It's a little bit less easy to show it to my kids, although they're still my kids, hopefully. 
it is very, very hard for me to show it to my wife and it's harder you still for me to show it to myself. Mm. And so I think that's what I struggle with is, is how, what does, what does a genuinely gracious marriage look like that continues to be real? Mm. Cause I'm just a person. I'm just a person. And there are things that I need for my wife emotionally that I don't need for my parishioners that I don't need for my kids, that I don't necessarily need for my friends. And I remember there's a guy I knew in New York City who was raised uh, Greek Orthodox, and there's a particular priest that he really loved. But at some point, that priest's marriage fell apart, and my friend was asking him why. It was an older gentleman. And there was some sense, I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to get the uh, story right. Pano Anthos, if you're out there listening to this story, <laughs> you can correct me. But it was something along the lines of like the priest tried so hard to be gracious and Christ-like that he ceased to be a human being. Yeah. And, his, and his wife just sort of couldn't be married to him anymore because there was no reality to their relationship. And so I struggle with that. Like how do you be a real person in the world with another person in a marriage relationship, for example, and still and still continue to be gracious and merciful. And maybe you just can't. Maybe you need that outside person, Dave, like you had from Dorothy. Yeah. I, okay. I think of two things. I think of the fact that Carrie kept referring to Neil as being her husband as being like married to Gandhi, <laughs> and that how hard that is because he's so. There's <laughs> exactly what Jamie would say about temperamentally me. so different, and I don't think I my wife and I have that kind of relationship. But I remember when Dorothy gave that talk that ever a lot of people stood up and and heard it as law, as like you as yeah. to be a good parent, you need to be this. When what she was actually describing was the way that God loves us, and so yes. our our as sinners, you might say, our inclination is to immediately put ourselves in, and especially as yes. people who are in active parenting, but we put ourselves yes. in the parenting role immediately. Mm-hmm. What the, the grace puts us in the child's role and to yes. be, we are not that, you know, maybe in our, by the grace of God through the Holy spirit and through some supernatural combination of, of diet and, uh, uh, you know, good sleep, we can be like that mom is occasionally, but Ultimately, what she's describing is remember in your own life the times that have meant the most to you, the times when you've come closest to seeing how God loves you is when you've experienced nurturing love that looks like this, that looks like mercy, that looks like Mm -hmm. the mother being willing to allow herself to be cast in this awful way and that being the key to absolutely everything. Depending on who you were in that room when that talk was given, people heard it either as law or as gospel, depending That's on whether or not they put themselves in the in the, the the position of parent or child. And so I think, I really do, th- I think the extent to which any kind of our relationships are marked by grace is usually, uh, it's proportional to the way that we've been loved or we, what we point to, but even, regardless of how those relationships work out or don't work out. What we point to is a God who loves us like this. And that's where our hope is. It's not in our own ability to be Dorothy Martin, because trust me, I get you. If you talk to Lou, her incredible husband, who is a Galatian scholar, world renowned, I'm sure he would have had stories about her. But for me, she was able to be this uncomplicated um, person of mercy and um, forbearance. And yes, I was paying her. So it's like, it's a little bit like she had to be. Yeah. And the, the miracle about God it, um, is that he's, he's, this is, this is from the heart as it were. This is, this is not in order, not because we're, he's being leveraged in some way. That is the right. beauty. And then, and the way, the place where some of our uh, analogies, I guess, break down. But I think that this wonderful story is a, 
uh, a glimpse of what she say of eternity breaking in uh, to uh, the world unfolded by time. Because it, I, I know what you're saying, Dave, and I, I need to not put so pressure, much pressure on myself. And yet at the same time, grace is mediated very often through human relationships, you know, and, um, and I, I want that for myself. I desperately want that, you know, someone to love me unconditionally. And I want to be that for somebody else, mm. you know, and as she said, it wasn't like this girl was saved always and forever from every issue she ever had, but she did start sleeping a little bit better at night. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners would like to sleep a little bit better at night, you know, and they need a, they need a Dorothy Martin in their, uh, life. So they just need some Barbie dolls. That. That's what I, I keep thinking. Neither of you played with Barbie dolls this way. So that's like I just need something to, to destroy. I did because I totally played something. with Barbie dolls. I guess dolls set more this stuff way. on fire. I just, I you know, full disclosure, I did play therapy as a kid with like. Did you? Was, there were maybe Barbies involved. It was, it was lots yeah. of GI Joes and things. And they're the, the best though because they look like people. The so you stuff can really you do. Yeah. Just. I mean, poor Darth give Vader. It to him. And her book, her book Beyond Deserving, is filled with these in stories of kids saying the most amazing things. And talk, saying, mm -hmm. "Oh, my dolls have never had this recipe before. It's a new recipe." And uh, I wonder if that's what Fortnite is now. If it's therapy for middle school boys, love to have a recording of what they. I mean, seriously, because it's it's play. It involves right. people. It involves right. violence. <laughs> you know, right. But it also involves dancing. You can dance in Fortnite too. Believe it or not. Um, yeah, apparently, the like flossing took off because of Fortnite. Really? Apparently. I found that out recently. Well, I don't that know may, about may not be true. you, Sarah, but I feel like I'm loving RJ unconditionally right now uh, based too. on that ridiculous yeah, observation. Just kidding. Yeah. I love it. I love you guys both. <laughs> and uh, we will talk to you again in a couple weeks. And um, yeah. Oh, there's it. I brought it to, I brought it to a close, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Fortnite every <laughs> time. I'm like, I don't right. know, As soon as it goes to Fortnite, it's time to go. Time to go. <laughs> All right, guys. Wonderful talking. Okay. All right. Awesome. You too, Dave. Have a good week. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time, 